Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Crimopedia podcast. Before I begin, I wanted to acknowledge that I've been having some troubles with the audio clips I've been using in my episodes. There seems to be a major difference in sound quality when I play the audio as I'm editing versus when I listen back on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm going to try my best to get to the bottom of this discrepancy in sound quality, but in the meantime, I do appreciate your continued support and listenership. Today, I'm going to be telling you about the story of Dylan Redwine. Dylan was a 13-year-old boy who went missing in November of 2012 while at his father's desolate cabin in Bayfield, Colorado, approximately 20 minutes from the Vallecito area in the mountains. Dylan's story is one that I've been wanting to talk about for a very long time, even before I started the Crimopedia podcast. It's a story that stuck with me from the moment I heard about it, even as it was developing back in 2012. It recently had a resolution, an outcome that I think a lot of people anticipated, but with no shortage of shocking details that nobody anticipated. And today, I'm going to flesh it all out for you. So with that, I think it's a good time to just jump right in. Dylan Nicholas Redwine was born on February 6th of 1999 and is only just short of a month younger than I am. Dylan was born in Colorado, USA and raised by parents Mark and Elaine Redwine. The couple had another son before they had Dylan and his name was Corey and Mark Redwine actually had two other sons from a previous marriage to a woman named Betsy. Their names were Brandon and Mark Allen. Dylan, however, was known to be a pretty chill kid. Like most his age, he loved video games, playing baseball, hanging out with his friends, eating pizza, and he was big on texting and social media. I remember being 12, 13 years old at the same time Dylan was in the same era, and the smartphone generation had officially begun. Everyone in my classes had either an LG sliding phone, a Blackberry, one of the first iPhones, or if you were unlucky, maybe just an iPod Touch. But everybody had something, and everybody for the first time in history was in constant communication all the time. And Dylan Redwine was no stranger to this world, a world where you were either watching Ray William Johnson, World Star, or Jenna Marbles on YouTube. At this time, even though I remember feeling like I knew everything in the world, Dylan and myself were just kids, and Dylan was about to start growing into a young man. He was a budding preteen. Unfortunately though, that didn't come before his parents, Mark and Elaine, would get divorced after 18 years of marriage together. Mark Redwine was a truck driver and by all accounts was a little rough around the edges and his job required him to be gone from the home for long periods of time. The family dynamic was tense as Dylan grew into his preteen years. The kids weren't the biggest fan of Mark Redwine and Mark Redwine wasn't the biggest fan of their mother and soon-to-be ex-wife, Elaine. 
The couple would get into large, heated arguments, allegedly sometimes physical and explosive in nature. And Mark alleges that Elaine had a problem with alcohol that only exacerbated the tension they already faced. It made sense that Mark and Elaine were going to get a divorce. When it happened, Dylan was still growing up and the rest of the boys in their family were in their late teens at the very least, but they all saw it coming. But just because divorce was inevitable for the Redwines, that doesn't mean it came easy. Mark and Elaine's separation was certainly a messy one, and there are allegations that the division of assets was so full of pure pettiness that Mark Redwine even demanded one half of each of Elaine's pair of shoes. And the custody portion of the separation was even worse, with both sides refusing to agree on how to share their children. Dylan was really the main concern. He was the youngest, and the rest of the boys were of age to make their own decisions. Brandon and Mark Allen, Mark's kids from a previous marriage, had already left the family home, and Corey elected to continue living with Elaine. But due to the inability of Mark and Elaine to come to an agreement about Dylan's custody, he was instead summoned in front of a judge to discuss which parent he wanted to live with. Dylan Redwine had a lot to consider here. He had to choose not only which parent he wanted to live with, but also what side of Colorado he wanted to stay in. He could either be in Bayfield with his dad or all the way near Colorado Springs with his mom and his brother. But unsurprisingly, Dylan chose to live with his mom, Elaine, and she was granted full custody, which he was very happy about. Dylan, like his brother, was not a big fan of how Mark Redwine had treated his mom before, during, and after the divorce. However, because Dylan was still a minor, Mark was granted mandatory visitation rights, so Dylan would be ordered by the court to visit his father every so often. I can't find any specific details about what this initial custody agreement was regarding Dylan, and so I don't know how many times Dylan was flown out or was driven down to Bayfield, Colorado from his mom's home. But what I do know is that Dylan Redwine was set to have one of these court-mandated visits for Thanksgiving in 2012 with his father. It was the week of November 22nd. Mark Redwine had purchased a plane ticket for Dylan to fly out to his home for November 18th, and Dylan was less than thrilled about it. Mark never really planned anything for them to do together, no activities really, and Mark lived in a pretty isolated cabin, so Dylan knew he was going to be just bored. As well, on top of the existing issues Dylan already had with his father, apparently during the previous visit Dylan had with him, the two had argued quite a bit about the divorce and things were pretty tense between them. To Dylan, it seemed like his dad was taking out his bitterness and frustration about the divorce with Elaine on him. Even worse was that Corey, Dylan's brother, didn't have to go to these court-mandated visits with their father as he was over 18 and the court couldn't mandate him to comply with any sort of custody agreement. He was an adult and Dylan was not. And so 
Elaine would drive Dylan, and only Dylan, to his flight to Bayfield, Colorado on November 18th of 2012. Dylan was 13 years old at the time, and in the security footage of him walking around the airport after being dropped off by his mom on the 18th, he looks like a pretty typical 13-year-old. He's wearing what looks like to be some sort of trendy sneaker. He's got, I think, a snapback hat on. He's got his hands in his pockets, walking with what looks like a little bit of swagger. He's just a normal little 13-year-old kid, trying to navigate his way around the airport and frankly navigate his way through his parents' divorce. There's also security footage of Dylan once he landed near his father's place in Durango, Colorado. Dylan would take out his phone and text his mom, telling her that he made it safely, with a sad face emoji, and he mentally prepared then to spend the next few days just trying to make it through until he could head back home. Mark Redwine would pick up his son around 6pm at the Durango airport, and their plan for the evening was to make a stop at Walmart and then to go grab dinner. There's again security footage of Dylan accompanied with his father at that Walmart, and afterwards, we don't see Dylan on tape again, but according to Mark, after they left the Walmart, he wanted to go to a sit-down restaurant, but Dylan just wanted to grab McDonald's through the drive-thru, so they did that instead. And then the pair headed home. Dylan had already been texting his friends in Bayfield that he was there and was already trying to make plans with them. That first night, he would ask his father if he could spend the night at his friend Tristan's house. Mark Redwine said no to this request, likely because Dylan had literally just arrived, but Dylan was so eager to spend time away from his dad, so he instead opted to make plans with Tristan the following day, November 19th, at 6.30 in the morning. The fact that Dylan Redwine, a 13-year-old boy in 2012, is willing to wake up at 6am to get out of the house begs the question, to me at least, as to why he was so desperate to see his friend and get out of there. It could be argued that Dylan doesn't actually get to see these friends in Bayfield often, as again, he lived in Colorado Springs full-time with his mom, Elaine, but many people in this case have pointed to Dylan's desperation to get out of the house as a huge sign, an eerie foreshadowing of what was to come, and point to how uncomfortable Dylan must have been with his father to wake up that early. Whatever the true reason was, on November 19th, Dylan would instead sleep in, well past when he was supposed to meet his friend, all according to Mark. At approximately 7.30 a.m., again, according to the recount of Mark Redwine, he got up to check on Dylan, who was sleeping on the couch, despite having a bedroom at his dad's house. Apparently, he never slept in it. He always slept on the couch, something I and a lot of other people find kind of odd, maybe sort of telling, but his dad chalks it up to it's just Dylan's preference. Mark Redwine said that on November 19th, when Dylan refused to wake up as a typical teenager does, he just decided to go on with his day. 
Mark Redwine ended up running some errands that morning, including a visit to his attorney's office and his work's payroll office before stopping at the post office and mailing off a child support check to Elaine. After running all of these errands, Mark Redwine would arrive back at his home for 11.30 a.m. But according to him, when he got there, Dylan wasn't there anymore. But the front door was wide open and there was a bowl of cereal sitting in front of the television that was tuned to Nickelodeon. Mark says to him this was evidence that Dylan did get up and went about his morning as well after his dad left. And he also said that Dylan's backpack, cell phone, and fishing pole were gone, so he figured that Dylan left to go see his friend after just sleeping in late. If we assume this innocuous version of events, it would make sense that Mark Redwine then decided to just take a midday nap and would wake up at approximately 1.30pm to a house still empty. After Mark Redwine woke up, he texted his son Dylan and received no response. And this to him was a little bit weird, so he decided to go out physically looking for him around 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Mark ended up at a few of Dylan's friends' houses, none of whom had seen or heard from Dylan. In fact, two of Dylan's friends noted in particular that they had been trying to reach him all day and hadn't received any replies either. Once Mark Redwine realized the situation was certainly odd and that Dylan couldn't be reached by anyone, he went down to the Bayfield Marshal's office to report his son missing. While he was there, he ended up texting Elaine and asked if she had heard from Dylan or happened to know where he was. But Elaine said that she found this to be odd, considering she was six hours away on the opposite side of the state. Why would she know where Dylan was? To me, personally, it seems innocent enough at face value. Maybe Mark knew Dylan wanted nothing to do with him and could sense his attachment to his mom. Maybe he knew Dylan would be texting her that he was leaving to spend time literally anywhere besides his father's house. However, Elaine had been married to Mark Redwine for 18 years prior to their divorce and could tell right away that by Mark's text to her, something was very wrong. She just didn't know exactly what yet. Elaine Redwine says that immediately after finding out that Mark, her ex-husband, didn't know where their son was, she contacted the authorities from Colorado Springs and did not hesitate for one second to drive the six hours from her house all the way to Mark's house with their other son, Corey. The two went straight to the La Plata County Sheriff's Office when they arrived during the evening hours of November 19th, and they continued to conduct physical searches for Dylan until approximately 2 a.m. without any help from Mark. By all accounts, the strangest thing about Dylan's disappearance like this was that Dylan was such a technology kid. He was an avid texter and his face was usually buried into his phone. And yet, not a single person had received a text message from him past 9.37pm the previous day on the 18th. And that was when he confirmed to meet his friend Tristan the following day at 6.30am. According to Elaine, Dylan was normally awake on his phone texting his friends until about midnight. 
but for over 24 hours by the time Elaine and Corey made it to Bayfield, Colorado and were out searching for Dylan, all of the text messages on Dylan's phone had been incoming. None of them were outgoing. In fact, Dylan's friend would text him at 6.46 a.m. on the 19th asking where he was and then asked him again at 10 a.m. And this was all before continuously texting Dylan's phone throughout the day while people were searching for him, telling him that people were very worried and that he needed to text somebody back. Pretty early into the searches for Dylan, Mark began openly speculating that his son could have walked to a nearby campground to get away, or he could have walked to a different friend's house, one that is nine and a half miles or about 15 kilometers away. Elaine had a gut feeling that these theories were simply impossible. That is quite an extreme distance for anyone to venture on their own, let alone the fact that it was November in Colorado, it was freezing cold, and Dylan would have been walking that distance. Elaine knew that her son would not do something like this, especially less than 24 hours after he arrived at his dad's, at least not without being in constant communication with one of his friends via text message. But police thought maybe it was possible that Dylan did run away after everything Elaine had told them about Dylan not wanting to be with his father. Despite this initial assumption about Dylan, search and rescue did begin pretty quickly after he went missing, likely without hesitation for three reasons. One, even if Dylan did run away voluntarily, he was still a minor. Two, his lack of communication was a huge red flag because as we all know, he was chronically online. And three was that Mark Redwine lived near the San Juan National Forest and a bunch of mountains, and it was extremely dangerous to be out there alone if that's in fact where Dylan was. So rescuers spared no expense, both financially and regarding man hours, combing through the bush in the mountains, hoping they would find Dylan just sitting somewhere, lost and scared. But parts of the mountains and forest were especially steep and rugged, and as the hours wore on, people were extremely concerned that if Dylan did run away, he could have very easily gotten hurt. Time was clearly of the essence. Rescue teams had already been walking up and down paved trails in the forests, but had begun using ATVs, drones, and canine units to sift out the unpaved areas. And things would seem hopeful for a split second after they brought in those dogs, as one of them was able to pick up on Dylan's scent just outside of Mark Redwine's home. But unfortunately, the dog couldn't actually follow Dylan's scent because it had nothing to use inside of Mark's home that actually smelt like Dylan. There was nothing in his house that Dylan used enough to be considered an object of his own, and so they had no control scent to follow this scent wherever it led. And after this, the searches continued for several days without a trace of Dylan anywhere, and consequently, Thanksgiving of 2012 would come and go. Elaine and the rest of her family, as well as Dylan's friends, Brandon Redwine and his wife, who drove all the way down from Arizona, as well as the rest of the community began to organize their own searches as well. And they were beginning to make pretty big news. It felt like everyone in Colorado was looking for Dylan Redwine. Everybody except for Mark. 
From the very beginning, Elaine was suspicious of Mark, right from the moment that he asked her if she knew where Dylan was. To her, Mark's story didn't make any sense. He claimed that Dylan left with his fishing pole, and that was his reasoning for not taking Dylan's disappearance very seriously at first. But according to Elaine, Dylan would never just go fishing by himself without any help. He didn't even know how to thread his own fishing line. She also thought it was really weird that Mark said the TV in his house was playing Nickelodeon when he arrived back from the errands he was running to an empty house on November 19th. According to her, Dylan didn't watch Nickelodeon anymore, and now that he was a teenager, he was more into MTV. To Elaine, it all seemed like a weak and kind of pathetic attempt at pulling together a story about Dylan's disappearance, when in reality, Mark didn't even know his own son well enough to conjure up something believable. On top of all of that, like I mentioned, there is footage of Dylan in Bayfield with his dad all the way up until when they left Walmart on November 18th, but after that, there's nothing. We all know that Dylan was alive at least until 9.37pm when he sent his very last text message to his friend Tristan, and police were able to confirm in fact that Mark Redwine did run errands at the locations he specified the next day on the 19th between 7.30 and 11.30am. But between 9.37pm on November 18th and 7.30am on November 19th, neither Dylan nor Mark Redwine can be accounted for, and all Elaine had to go off of was Mark's story. The same story that she was having a very hard time taking at face value. A Facebook page was set up for Dylan alongside a $50,000 Crime Stoppers reward for information about his disappearance. And although the days continued to pass in November without any sign of Dylan Redwine, it didn't seem like anyone was remotely close to slowing down. The weekend after Thanksgiving in 2012, it would be the weekend of November 24th, and canine units would pick up on Dylan's scent once again, but this time near the Vallecito Reservoir, approximately nine minutes away from Mark's home by car. Rescue teams immediately equipped themselves with boats and sonar, a modern device used often during rescue missions that use sound waves to detect objects in water, but unfortunately, even using this kind of technology, they found nothing. It seemed like every time investigators and rescue teams got a lead about Dylan, or one of the canine units picked up his scent, they would always come up empty-handed. And as time went on, it became increasingly obvious that they were looking for Dylan in places that weren't compatible with life. If they were using sonar in the Vallecito Reservoir, they obviously weren't searching for Dylan Redwine alive. And before anybody knew it, searching for Dylan had become a recovery mission instead of a rescue one. It was at this time that Elaine became more candid about her suspicions of Mark. She's quoted in a Fox News article as saying, My gut feeling is that Dylan's dad had something to do or knows something more than he's giving us information about, end quote. But despite the obvious weaknesses in Mark's story, according to Elaine, he stuck with it, saying, quote, Dylan, my prayers are with you and I love you very much. He was the light of my life and meant everything to me. End quote. 
Something that stuck out to me during interviews of Mark Redwine contrasted with Elaine and Corey is his insistence on talking about Dylan in the past tense. He was the light of my life. In February of 2013, another large search was organized, and this time cadaver dogs were brought to the areas around Mark's home instead of just regular canine units. As well, both Mark Redwine and Elaine were given polygraph tests, Elaine alleging she passed hers with flying colors, and Mark refusing to comment on his results. But it wouldn't be long until the public actually did know what those results were. In an interesting turn of events, the entire family, consisting of Elaine, Mark, and Corey Redwine, all went on the Dr. Phil show on February 27th of 2013. The episode is approximately two hours long, and as much as I would love to include audio from it for you all to listen, Dr. Phil will absolutely copyright strike me within three minutes of uploading this Crimopedia episode. So instead, I'm just going to attempt to describe what kind of a circus it really was to you, and I encourage you to watch it in full if you're able. On the show, Elaine outwardly accuses Mark of being involved in their son's disappearance, and even Corey, their other, older son, joins in. However, Mark Redwine comes out of the woodwork and for the first time states that he is equally suspicious of Elaine, saying that over the past six to eight months, she had been alienating him from Dylan. Not at Dylan's request or anything. But then Dr. Phil gets on Mark's case about his suspicions of Elaine. He says, quote, do you honestly believe that Elaine put Dylan on an airplane from six hours away and flew him to you and somehow trailed behind and abducted him from your couch? And after several minutes of back and forth, it's evident that Dr. Phil is suspicious of Mark's story and his intentions, despite outwardly stating that he's not there to make any assumptions about either parent, and is strictly allowing them airtime to bring Dylan's disappearance some awareness. But it's pretty obvious to Dr. Phil, and I think everybody watching, that the only reason Mark is even coming after Elaine with the same strength that she's coming after him is because he has nothing to defend himself with when Elaine pokes legitimate holes in Mark's story. And a really good example of this is at some point during the televised bickering, Mark says to Dr. Phil that Elaine never called him after Dylan went missing. Elaine says she did, but Mark blocked her phone number. Elaine questions then why it would even need to be her responsibility to call Mark after he discovered that their son was missing. Shouldn't he immediately be calling Elaine? And to this, Mark doesn't have a single rebuttal. So, like a classic narcissist, he begins to attack her character and demeanor as a distracting point, saying that she is angry and incapable of just having a civil conversation. And then, on the show, the topic of Mark and Elaine's polygraph tests with the La Plata County Sheriff's Office does come up, and again, Mark is less than forthcoming about his results. He does eventually come clean and say that he was told that he failed it. And so, to clear his name, Dr. Phil offers to have Mark Redwine take a polygraph test again in a separate, private room with an exceptionally qualified administrator. But at the very last second, as Mark is sitting in the chair, waiting for the cameras to leave the room so the polygraph can actually be administered, he backs out and refuses to do the test. 
As chaotic as the Dr. Phil episode was with the Red Wines, it did bring considerable attention to Dylan's case, making both national and international headlines. And Elaine continued to maintain her conviction about Mark's involvement even after the show aired, and she began to hold several rallies in front of Mark's home as well as multiple vigils for Dylan that Mark never attended. Another massive search was conducted on June 25th of 2013, and it was planned to be in the Middle Mountain area, near the Vallecito waterways where the canine units had previously picked up Dylan's scent before. 45 officers from the La Plata County Sheriff's Office would begin a five-day search that covered 12 miles along an unpaved area of this road that happened to run parallel to where Mark Redwine lived. It wouldn't take very long before officers came out with something actually worthwhile. On the same day that the search began, the 25th, officers would announce they found evidence that could be related to the Dylan Redwine case, but they did not elaborate on it. Due to this discovery, they decided the search would be extended, and it would end up totaling approximately 1,600 man-hours. But again, it wouldn't be for nothing because two days after the announcement that police officers had found evidence, on June 27th of 2013, the La Plata County Sheriff's Office announced that their discovery was, in fact, partial remains of Dylan Redwine. The remains were located approximately 8 miles, or 13 kilometers, from Mark Redwine's home, and they were in a very remote and difficult-to-access area of the bush. The remains were taken to the medical examiner, who unfortunately could not at that time determine a conclusive cause or manner of death. And of course, this allowed the rumor mill to start spiraling. Everybody in the community who had invested themselves in this case had their own theories about what could have happened to Dylan Redwine. And without any sort of conclusion from the medical examiner, it was hard to say who was right and who was wrong. The discovery of Dylan's partial remains was a difficult pill to swallow for Elaine and Corey, and frankly, it sent shockwaves throughout the entire state of Colorado. Mark Redwine would come out after the discovery of his son's partial remains and is quoted as saying that he was blindsided and devastated by the news of his son's death, and now he was just focused on making funeral arrangements with Elaine. But Elaine, however, was more sure than ever that Mark had something to do with Dylan's death and had many questions that she needed answers to. She needed to know where Mark was between the hours of 9.37pm on November 18th, 2012 and 7.30am on the 19th. She needed to know where Dylan's backpack and cell phone were because those were not found alongside his partial remains. She also needed a concrete cause and manner of death and soon, because as of right now, Dylan could have died by any means, and all she had to go on to incriminate Mark was her own gut feeling. Despite feeling stuck with a laundry list of questions, Elaine Redwine stuck to her story and continued to speak out against Mark, and it came out that Mark had a violent and unpredictable past, and this was part of the reason that Dylan wanted nothing to do with him. 
In Mark's previous marriage, the one to a woman named Betsy, the woman he had two other sons with, after their separation, he had violated their custody agreement and kept his sons for longer than the court allowed. Apparently, Betsy was so terrified of Mark that she ended up immediately filing a police report. And this was not the first or last time that Mark would do this. It also came out that he would get angry and physical in his relationships. This was briefly discussed on the Dr. Phil show, stuff he chalked up to mild shoving, but according to other witnesses, it was much more than just mild shoving. And then, on Wednesday, August 14th of 2013, police would end up searching Mark Redwine's home. I suppose, depending on who you ask, surprisingly or unsurprisingly, police would find a few drops of Dylan's blood in Mark's home. Drops that Mark's girlfriend at the time, Karen Alexander, attributed to Dylan accidentally cutting his finger with a kitchen knife an entire year prior to when he went missing. But police didn't just find a small drop of Dylan Redwine's blood. They would end up cutting out a piece of Mark's living room rug and took several of his devices before bringing him in for a formal interview. Now, I couldn't find much on this interview with police, but I do know that they let Mark know he was not a suspect in his son's disappearance despite everything they confiscated from his home. But the pressure was mounting. And whether or not Mark Redwine was classified as an official suspect in the disappearance and death of his son, I'm sure at this point, at the very least, he could feel the sense of urgency police had to solve this case. In 2015, Mark's home would be searched a second time, and I'm not sure what exactly they took, but this came after some incredibly odd behavior from Mark Redwine as well as Elaine being granted a temporary restraining order against him. The year prior in 2014, Mark Redwine had preemptively called a reporter and told them that he would be admitting himself to hospital for paranoia. Why he did this, nobody is really sure. At that time, again, Mark, I'm sure, was feeling the pressure, but he was not labeled a suspect or person of interest in police's eyes but that wouldn't last for long, because after this second search, police would declare Mark Redwine as an official person of interest in the disappearance of his 13-year-old son, Dylan Redwine. On November 1st, 2015, almost three years since Dylan had disappeared, a hiker venturing into the wilderness of Colorado stumbled on another piece of evidence the police had not found yet a human skull, one that would soon be confirmed to belong to Dylan Redwine. The skull was found approximately 1.5 miles or 2.5 kilometers from where the other sets of remains were found, still relatively close to Mark Redwine's home. When it was brought to the county medical examiner for analysis, the skull was found to have a fracture above the left eye, as well as other indentations and marks indicative of blunt force trauma. Up until now, Mark Redwine had pushed the story that his son likely ran away and was scavenged by animals after his death, either by exposure or injury. And Elaine, despite her suspicions of Mark's involvement, actually couldn't prove that anyone had anything to do with Dylan's disappearance. But now, 
there was no question that someone was involved. Dylan Redwine was the victim of murder. I'm sure at this point, Mark Redwine could certainly feel the heat. He had been named an official person of interest in his son's disappearance and now murder. Elaine and the surrounding community had been rallying outside of his home for months, and everyone in what seemed like the entire country had their eyes on him. Mark's instinct was to stick to his story without wavering, now maintaining that Dylan's remains must have been planted near his home to frame him. Once it became clear that he had been murdered by a human and not by an animal in the mountains, Mark then started openly speculating that someone random could have kidnapped Dylan. It was becoming increasingly clear that Mark Redwine was losing his grip on control. He provided no motive for his theories that Elaine was involved in Dylan's disappearance and murder. He provided no motive for why someone random would come kidnap Dylan. But any story that instilled reasonable doubt into Mark's involvement was one that he was going to tell people. And he would actually go as far as to go out into the forested area where the rest of Dylan's remains were found and film himself acting out a hypothetical scene where Dylan ran away and was accidentally shot by a hunter. Better yet, this video was promptly uploaded to his personal Facebook for his friends list to marvel at what a circus-like spectacle Mark Redwine was becoming. Again, there was no basis for this theory that Dylan ran away and was shot by hunters, but it was a story that involved blame on someone else other than Mark. And so for Mark, it was worth trying to convince somebody. And of course, like I mentioned, Elaine was not exempt from Mark's blind accusatory speculation. He would actually try to file a civil wrongful death lawsuit against her. And I can't even begin to think about what evidence he could possibly get to use as grounds to do this, but it was inevitably dismissed. Elaine herself also filed a wrongful death suit against Mark, and that was dismissed also. But that doesn't mean that Mark wouldn't be prosecuted. The La Plata County Sheriff's Office just wasn't ready. As much as now, in hindsight, it might seem like Mark Redwine's involvement in his son's disappearance and death is obvious, these things take time. Investigations need time and money in order to be successful. Prosecutors can't just take someone to criminal court with a few pieces of evidence, especially if they're not concrete and physical. In order to get a conviction, you're going to need a well-rounded case that nobody can poke holes into. And it would take until the summer of 2017 before investigators had that, and then they would pursue an indictment against Mark Redwine for second-degree murder of his own son, 13-year-old Dylan Redwine. Mark was still working as a truck driver in the summer of 2017, and at that time, he was in Bellingham, Washington with a trainee. As this trainee was sitting in the passenger seat of Mark's transport, Mark confided in him that his son was missing and that he was devastated. However, Mark neglected to mention to this trainee that he was a person of interest or that his son's remains had even been found. And I'm sure Mark was telling him all of this completely unaware that the truth of the matter would actually be revealed in front of the trainee's own eyes in real time. As they were sitting together, police in Washington would pull over the transport and detain Mark, pulling him from the driver's side of his work vehicle with the trainee still in the passenger and arresting him for the murder of Dylan Redwine. 
Mark was booked and held on a $1 million cash-only bond in Washington before being extradited to Colorado and charged with second-degree murder and child abuse resulting in death on August 15th of 2017. Unsurprisingly, Mark Redwine pled not guilty to both charges. Criminal profiling consultant Pete Kleismeck was quoted as saying that Mark is a narcissistic psychopath that would likely never admit fault to his crimes, regardless of the evidence presented before him, similar to what we saw with Dahlia DiPolito. And frankly, little did Mark know that the evidence that would be presented before him was a lot. Although Mark's trial would be rescheduled approximately 10 times over the years, once because his attorney was arrested for domestic violence, a couple other times because of COVID-19, the evidence that police continued to stockpile would slowly unveil itself through bits and pieces of trial proceedings that we all got to witness. It came out that police had found trace amounts of Dylan's blood all over Mark's living room on the couch, on the love seat, on the corner of a coffee table, and a large, dried pool of it underneath a rug, presumably the same rug that investigators had cut a large section out of during one of the searches of Mark's home. As well, cadaver dogs had alerted to the scent of human decay in Mark's living room, as well as on Mark's clothes and in the back of his vehicle. Beginning in April of 2021, prosecutors outlined the full comprehensive theory of what they thought happened to Dylan Redwine. Mark murdered his son on the evening of November 18th and spent the entire night and early morning cleaning up the mess and spreading Dylan's remains after decapitating him to make disposal of his body easier. The picture painted of what happened that night by the prosecution is gruesome on its own, and it was all backed up with the physical evidence that they found at the crime scene. But it was truly Mark's speculated motive that captured international media headlines by storm. Because really, even though their relationship was tense, why would Mark Redwine murder his 13-year-old son? During the April 2021 trial, Corey Redwine, Mark's other son with Elaine, testified against his father and successfully outlined exactly what could have pushed Mark Redwine to brutally butcher his son. In Corey's testimony, he said that approximately one year before Dylan disappeared in 2012, Mark had taken both Corey and Dylan on a road trip. At some point during this trip, the boys had been using their father's laptop and stumbled across photos of their 50-year-old father dressed in makeup and women's lingerie, eating feces out of a diaper. In these incredibly lewd photos, Mark is posing with the feces in his mouth and on his face. Nobody is sure if they are his own excrement or a partner's. For the boys, however, it didn't matter who it belonged to. These photos were so shocking and disturbing for them to see, especially Dylan, who would have been only 12 years old, that it solidified to both of them that they wanted nothing to do with their father, who they clearly didn't even know that well. Corey and Dylan would take their father's laptop into a bathroom, lock the door, and took photos of these photos using Corey's phone. 
I'm not sure why they did this, but many have speculated that it could be used as evidence later that neither of them should be spending time with their father. Not that we're necessarily kink-shaming, but if this kind of sexually explicit material is readily available to a 12-year-old, I mean, I can understand why someone might hesitate to send their children off to spend time with that person. But whether this evidence, quote-unquote, would be presented in front of a court or just to Elaine, it would never become clear, as Dylan Redwine would be murdered only a year later. In early 2012, Corey said to the court that he confronted his dad with these photos, and according to his testimony, Mark absolutely freaked out at Corey and had a horrible reaction, likely out of embarrassment. But Mark's angry and violent side came out within seconds of the revelation that these photos had been seen by his son. Corey and many others would testify that this episode of violence was not an isolated incident either, and that Mark's anger would often take over his relationships. In Corey's words, that encounter destroyed what very little respect he still had for his dad after the divorce, and that was the end of their relationship. The prosecution continued to argue that Dylan may have also confronted his dad with these photos on the night that he went missing on November 18th. Evidence for this came from submissions of text messages between Corey and Dylan in August of 2012. In these messages, Dylan Redwine asked his brother Corey to send over those photos of his dad. According to Dylan, Mark had apparently just given him a long lecture about how awful of an influence Corey and Elaine were on him, and so Dylan wanted to quote-unquote show him who he really is. The prosecution put forth a theory that Dylan was so frustrated that his father would not let him stay the night at Tristan's house on November 18th of 2012 that he just came out and told his father he didn't want to be there. The two likely began bickering, that escalated into arguing, and Dylan likely called out his own father for being abusive towards his family, making special note of the way Mark has always treated Elaine, and at some point in that argument, Dylan likely confronted his dad with those lewd photos of him in lingerie eating feces, just as he always intended to do. The prosecution ended by saying that Mark likely killed Dylan in a fit of rage and embarrassment. While trying to substantiate their theory through character witnesses, the prosecution summoned Mark's ex-wife Betsy, who would testify that their marriage together was horrible. According to her, it was full of fighting, violence, and on one occasion, he even threatened to kill their kids during their separation. And this was on top of the times that he had violated their custody agreements and she had to call police. Betsy said on the stand that when she heard Dylan was missing, it all came flooding back to her. Memories of her and Mark Redwine arguing, memories of them struggling with custody, and a specific memory of her and Mark camping in the Colorado wilderness, surrounded by mountains, where he made a comment about how it would be the perfect place to hide a body. Brandon, one of Mark's sons with Betsy, would also testify that during the multiple searches for Dylan, he would confront his dad about his apathy. Mark was evidently not searching for Dylan at all, 
he wasn't focused, he wasn't quote-unquote anxious to get involved, and he wasn't expressing any sort of emotion. According to Brandon, Mark was apathetic when Dylan's partial remains were found, the bones of a 13-year-old boy. It seemed like Mark was trying to play it cool, except his calm demeanor would slip when, again, according to Brandon, he overheard his dad thinking out loud that Dylan could have died from blunt force trauma. And this was well before his skull was even found and that determination was even made. On the contrary, Mark's defense says that everything presented is circumstantial, and he even denies that the lewd photos of him in lingerie, eating feces, or even of him. In fact, he would default to what he always knew. Mark blamed Elaine for these photos coming out. He maintained that Elaine actually photoshopped these photos of him in a diaper, eating feces, wearing makeup to bash his character. Mark's defense stated that the blood found in his home was typical of any home. You could find that amount of blood anywhere if you're just looking hard enough. They also maintained that cadaver dogs and their expertise is totally grounded in junk science. The defense also argued that Mark's refusal to submit to a polygraph on the Dr. Phil show should also be hidden from court, and that the entire case was focused on Mark from the beginning because Elaine had manipulated the media to slander his name. Consequently, they argued that Elaine's testimony should be thrown out entirely. Her testimony about how horrible their marriage was, how she suspected him from the beginning, and how he had a violent past. The defense argued that the prosecution was ignoring potential exculpatory evidence, evidence that would clear Mark's name, such as the fact that Dylan's skull had been mishandled by someone on the forensic team, resulting in a piece of it breaking off. However, this piece actually had nothing to do with the indentation that looked like Dylan had been hit with a sharp object, or the other marks that resembled blunt force trauma. Despite a forensic examiner concluding that these marks actually were from blunt force trauma, Mark's defense maintained that these marks and indentations were nothing but evidence to substantiate the theory that Dylan ran away and was ravaged by wild animals. In my opinion, Mark's attempts at trying to discredit the prosecution's evidence were pretty weak. Pretty early on into the case, I think everybody who was watching could tell that Mark was involved, and Elaine knew it from the very beginning. At the very end, it would be a 12-person jury who knew it, as they would decide that the defense was unable to successfully invoke reasonable doubt, and after a six and a half hour deliberation period, they would come back with a unanimous guilty verdict for both charges on July 16th of 2021. Mark Redwine, almost nine years after his son Dylan was murdered, was found guilty of second-degree murder and child abuse resulting in death. Mark Redwine would be sentenced by Judicial District Court Justice Jeffrey Wilson to 48 years in prison on October 8th of 2021. Judge Wilson concluded that Mark's efforts to hide Dylan's body, including the decapitation of his 13-year-old son in his own living room for easier disposal of remains, caused harm not only to Dylan's family, but to the entire community through both the dragging out of endless search efforts and the gruesome discovery of a 13-year-old boy's bones. And that's why Mark was given the maximum sentence. 
Corey's victim impact statement was incredibly profound, and it resonated with much of the United States who, again, had been watching the trial as it livestreamed. In it, he said, quote, The past nine years without Dylan have been nothing short of misery. I can't bring Dylan back. I can only remember him. I can't talk to him, so I pray to him. And I can't see Dylan, so I dream of him. Mark may have physically taken him and I can't change that, but what I can do is show the world how a 13-year-old young man stood up to his then 50-year-old father and said all the things that I regret never saying. Dylan is my hero and became more of a man in 13 years than Mark Redwine did in 60." End quote. In 2022, Elaine and Corey went back on the Dr. Phil show for a true crime update special episode. Elaine is immediately praised as she always knew Mark was guilty and refused to let him get away with it, even during times when it seemed like the case was moving incredibly slow. She refused to let the world forget that her son was taken from her, and Dylan was taken from her by someone who Dylan was supposed to trust wholeheartedly, but never could. In an October 2021 statement from Mark's public defender, John Morin, Mark states that he fully intends to appeal his conviction, but Dr. Phil urges Elaine and Corey that it's time to take a break and don't even think about that. Both of them had been fighting tooth and nail for a decade to find justice for Dylan Redwine, and it was time to enjoy their victory as best as they could without Dylan. The Dr. Phil show actually organized an all-expenses-paid trip for them and their spouses as Elaine got remarried to someone named Mike Hall, and they were all going to be sent to Mexico, which I thought was really nice and very well-deserved after their years of tireless fighting against a pathetic, manipulative, and dangerous man. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. Again, I sincerely appreciate all of your continued support and listenership. Dylan's case resonates with me deeply, as we're so close in age. Now I'm 23, I'm a university student, I have many plans for my future, and I do my best to enjoy my life every day. When I was 12 and 13, I was just like Dylan. I was chronically online, addicted to my devices and just being crazy with my friends. But due to the selfish actions of Mark Redwine, Dylan will never get to experience the life that I and many of his peers have. All because he was brave. All because he wanted to stand up for himself. And his father couldn't take it. Couldn't take the bravery of a 13-year-old boy finally standing his ground. I will post the evidence files from the Dylan Redwine case on my website at crimopediapod.ca. However, they do include the photos of Mark Redwine eating feces in lingerie. I'm not going to lie, these photos are pretty horrific. They are quite shocking on their own, but I can only imagine being his 12-year-old son having to see that. So, view the photos at your own risk, especially considering the link I'll upload them through has them all unlabeled, so you never know what you're going to open up if you're clicking on an evidence file. But alongside that, as always, you can find all of the source material for this episode on my website, and you can also find a case suggestion box there if you want to hear a story that I haven't told yet. 
One last thing before I go is that there will be no episode for June 30th, as I'm going on vacation. It is a much, much needed break from all of the work I've been doing, and I'm really looking forward to it, so I hope you all have patience with me. I'm excited to come back and continue uploading, but as of June 30th, there will be no new Crimopedia episode. Thankfully though, I have like 33 other episodes that you can listen to in the meantime. So I hope you all enjoy those if you're going to go binge them, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it for you. Until I come back from my much-needed vacation, I will talk to you all soon. Music